Chapter 28 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Edward Tomlinson. Minor Engagements. Arnold and Andre. Each of the northern armies during these closing years of the war was striving to tire out the other, and only minor engagements between the opposing forces occurred. A few of these will serve to show the general character of the struggle as it was carried on in the north. Near the close of the summer of 1779, after the seizure and abandonment of Stony Point by General Wayne, Major Lee, Light Horse Harry, advanced upon Paulus Hook, the ancient name of Jersey City, at that time a sandy peninsula on which the British had erected a fort of considerable strength, garrisoned at this time by Clinton's men. Major Lee had three hundred men, and behind him, as a reserve force, came also a band of Sterling's followers. As the Continentals marched from the place they had been holding on the Hudson, the people of the region thought but little of their advance, for foraging parties were common, and doubtless they thought that this was one of them. It was three o'clock in the morning of August 19, 1779, when Major Lee, having carefully arranged his little force, advanced stealthily upon the fort. The Sentinels were sleeping in their sense of false security, and before anyone fairly realized what had taken place, 159 British soldiers were prisoners in Lee's hands, with whom he quickly withdrew, rather than attempt to attack the stronger circular redoubt into which the remaining part of the garrison had quickly withdrawn. For this gallant deed Lee received the thanks of Congress, and a gold medal was also given him. In the following year Light Horse Harry, with Mad Anthony Wayne and some of the troops, horse and foot, was sent to storm the blockhouse at Bergen Neck, and attempt to drive within the American lines the cattle the British had there. Although the attack upon the blockhouse was spirited, the guns were too light to produce any marked effect, and so the dragoons returned to the camp, though they had succeeded in driving before them a large number of cattle. This attack became a source of sport and ridicule, and Major Andre, whose name we shall soon hear again, wrote a poem entitled The Cow Chase, which afforded the Redcoats much amusement at the time. This poem consists of three cantos, and its character may be learned from the following extracts. At six the host with sweating buff arrived at Freedom's Pole, when Wayne, who thought he'd time enough, thus speechified the whole. O ye whom glory doth unite, who Freedom's cause espouse, whether the wing that's doomed to flight, or that to drive the cows, ere you tempt your further way, or into action come, here, soldiers, what I have to say, and take a pint of rum. Then from the cask of rum once more they took a ready gill, and one and all they loudly swore they'd fight upon the hill. In the summer of 1780, a large force of the enemy crossed from Staten Island to Elizabethtown, and started across the country to attempt to drive Washington from his camp at Morristown. But speedy messengers were sent in every direction. The alarm was given. The old sow, a cannon kept upon the hilltop to warn people of the coming of the enemy, was fired. 
and soon a crowd of men and boys were so harassing the redcoats and hessians by their fire from behind the trees and fences that they were glad to retire a few days afterward the british under the lead of clinton once more attempted the same thing but at springfield the farmers and militia rallied and from an advantageous ground fought so desperately that alarmed also by the reports of what washington was doing and where he was once more the redcoats retired having suffered quite a severe loss and the camp at morristown was still unmolested one of the most pathetic stories of the revolution is that of the death of mrs james caldwell at the time just mentioned her husband the reverend james caldwell had with the men of the presbyterian church he served at elizabethtown fought bravely for the cause of the colonies indeed he had preached from his pulpit when a pistol lay on each side of his bible and a row of muskets was in front of the church ready for instant use so strong had his efforts been that the british had offered a reward for him dead or alive as they also had for governor livingstone at this time parson caldwell had sent his family to a nearby place in the country for safety and when the hessians were marching past the house occupied by his wife she with a maid and her youngest child retired to a secluded room there looking out a window the maid said a redcoat soldier has jumped over the fence and is coming up to the window with a gun the baby two or three years of age called out let me see let me see and ran toward the maid mrs caldwell rose from the bed on which she had been sitting and at that moment the soldier fired his musket at her through the window it was loaded with two balls both of which passed through her body naturally the death of mistress caldwell roused the people and soldiers to a fearful pitch of excitement and parson caldwell fought as never he had fought before in the heat of the contest at springfield the wadding for the guns unexpectedly gave out but parson rushed into the old church by the roadside and coming forth with his arms filled with many well-worn copies of watts hymns shouted now put watts into them boys give em watts doubtless all those men knew by experience that it was possible to beat learning into the boys but to shoot men with watts hymns that was another matter but they drove back the redcoats caldwell of springfield new jersey here's the spot look around you above on the height lay the hessians encamped by that church on the right stood the gaunt jersey farmers and here ran a wall you may dig anywhere and you'll turn up a ball nothing more grasses spring waters run flowers blow pretty much as they did ninety-three years ago nothing more did i say stay one moment you've heard of caldwell the parson who once preached the word down at springfield what no come that's bad why he had all the jerseys aflame and they gave him the name of the rebel high priest he stuck in their gorge for he loved the lord god and hated king george he had cause you might say when the hessians that day marched up with knipphausen they stopped on their way at the farms where his wife with a child in her arms sat alone in the house how it happened none knew but god and that one of the hireling crew who fired the shot enough there she lay and caldwell the chaplain her husband away did he preach did he pray think of him as you stand by the old church today think of him and that band of militant ploughboys 
see the smoke and the heat of that reckless advance, of that straggling retreat. Keep the ghost of that wife, foully slain, in your view. And what could you, what should you, what would you do? Why, just what he did. They were left in the lurch for the want of more wadding. He ran to the church, broke the door, stripped the pews, and dashed out in the road with his arms full of hymn-books, and threw down his load at their feet. When above all the shouting and shots rang his voice, Put watts into him, boys. Give him watts. And they did. That is all. Grasses spring, flowers blow, pretty much as they did ninety-three years ago. You may dig anywhere, and you'll turn up a ball. But not always a hero like this. And that's all. Bret Hart Such skirmishes were not few nor infrequent, and occurred, for the most part, near the places where the armies were encamped. But the main struggle dragged on, and apparently was no nearer the end with every passing month. Money had depreciated in value until it was practically worthless, and the colonies, or states, had few common bonds. Many were weary of the long war, and hopeless of ever gaining their freedom, and the reports that came from the South were very discouraging. Still, it is at such a time that the qualities of a great man shine forth. It is easy enough to keep up heart when all things move in our favor, but to be brave when others despair tests the stuff of which strong men are made. It would seem as if the feeble little country and its lion-hearted leaders had all that they ought to bear, but at this very time a blow fell upon them that was almost crushing in its weight, and that was the treason of Benedict Arnold. What wonder it is that the noble-hearted Washington wept like a little child when he could no longer doubt its truth. We have already seen how Arnold had suffered from the envy, injustice, and pettiness of his rivals and the incompetency of some of the leading men. His rage at the treatment he had received, and he certainly had cause for complaint, for he had labored as few had done and displayed a bravery that was heroic, might have led him into serious trouble on the field had he not been wounded in the fight with the forces of John Burgoyne, when, against the wish, if not the order of Gates, he had ridden at full speed against the Redcoats, and by his example roused his comrades, and won the day. Severely wounded in the leg, and therefore unfitted for service on the field, he had been placed in command at Philadelphia after the withdrawal of the British under Sir Henry Clinton from that city in 1778. As soon as Congress returned to the city, an opportunity was given, which a man as impulsive and hot-headed as Benedict Arnold was certain to use to have many a quarrel. And quarrel he did, for blaming the members of Congress and the Board of War for the injustice he had suffered, it was but natural that hard things should be said by both parties. In addition to these things, Arnold entered into the social life of the city, for which by nature he was much better adapted than many of his rough-mannered but true-hearted comrades in the war, and that, too, had a marked effect upon him. Without doubt the young girl, Margaret Shippen, who became his wife, also had much to do with the change. No one would ever think of accusing her of being the cause of her husband's treason, but indirectly there can be no doubt that she, at the very least, did not retard him though she never knew of his plan until the fatal moment arrived when he fled for his life. Her family were known to be sympathizers with the king's side. Their home was a beautiful one, 
and in the preceding winter had been the resort of many of the young British officers, and in the Michianza, Margaret Shippen had a leading part. In her home, in her home she had been accustomed to hear the Continentals held up to ridicule for their rough and boorish appearance. In such marked contrast to the well-dressed and polite young officers of the British. So the whole influence of the family upon this bright and beautiful young girl had been to make her feel almost ashamed of her own countrymen, and her own indirect influence upon Arnold had naturally been of a similar kind. But Benedict Arnold, handsome, bold, dashing, was an exception to his fellows, and his manners and bearing at once appealed not only to Margaret Shippen, but to her aristocratic family as well. Arnold was a gentleman, in their estimation, for they looked only upon the surface. As he was naturally fond of society, and lived in the best of style, having his coach and four, and giving the most elaborate dinner parties and lavish entertainments, his manner of living also appealed to the Shippens, but they did not realize to what lengths these extravagances were leading the reckless officer, and soon he was in dire straits for money with which to pay his debts. And all this time he was quarreling with Congress, and arrogantly demanding from them what they were not disposed to grant. So keen was Arnold's demand for money that he even went to the French to secure a loan, which naturally, under the circumstances, was not granted and the refusal only made the debt-laden man more desperate, for money he must have, and soon. At last the quarrel became so heated that specific charges were made against Arnold, one of which that he was using the position he held as a means of making money for himself, and a court-martial was ordered. The bravery of the man, his former services, and his recognized ability inclined the men who tried him to be lenient, and he was virtually acquitted of all the charges. But in order not to make the members of Congress more angry than they already were, it was decided that Washington, who was known to have a very friendly feeling for his brave comrade-in-arms, should administer a public reprimand. Mildly as possible, Washington did as the court directed, striving at the same time to save the feelings of Arnold and not increase the rage of the members of Congress, who felt that their own dignity had been assailed. The commander is said to have spoken to Arnold when he was brought before him to receive the reprimand as follows. Our profession is the chastest of all. Even the shadow of a fault tarnishes the luster of our finest achievements. The least inadvertence may rob us of the public favor, so hard to be acquired. I reprimand you for having forgotten that, in proportion as you rendered yourself formidable to our enemies, you should have been guarded and temperate in your deportment to your fellow citizens. Exhibit anew those noble qualities which have placed you on the list of our most valued commanders. I will furnish you, as far as it may be in my power, with opportunities of regaining the esteem of your country. But Arnold was in no mood to receive even the mild words of the great commander. Already goaded by the injustice with which he had been treated, and that he was treated unjustly no one can deny, tormented by the lack of money with which to pay the many debts he owed, and hearing constantly his former friends and comrades held up to ridicule for their lack of elegance and their boorish manners, he had been for a considerable time in correspondence with the enemy. He had written, with a feigned handwriting, letters which he signed Gustavus, and the replies had come signed by John Anderson, which was the fictitious name assumed by Major Andre, 
one of the best of the younger British officers. This young man had been in Philadelphia the preceding winter, and at many of the festivities had met Margaret Shippen, with whom he had formed a strong friendship. If Benedict Arnold had in a sudden fit of rage deserted to the enemy, or if he had really come to believe that the cause of the Americans was hopeless, and had gone over to the other side because of his belief, then in spite of his dastardly act some slight charity might still be found for him. But coolly and deliberately, for many months, he had been carrying on the correspondence, and his treachery, therefore, has not the shadow of a shade of an excuse. If he had been truly a great man, he would have borne his insults in patience, just as Washington was doing, and time would have set him right before the world. But his vanity was wounded, and his desire for money had become so keen that as truly as Judas did, he sold himself for silver. And too, like Judas, in reality, he only betrayed himself. Washington, who, as has been said, liked Arnold and sympathized with him, was really desirous of giving him an opportunity to restore himself, and believed that as soon as he was engaged in the active conflict, he would forget his troubles and win for himself a name that would be remembered, now offered him a command in the army. But Arnold was now plotting to betray his commander, his country, and his countrymen, and believed that West Point would be the best place to give over, for Washington had been busy in erecting some of the forts along the Hudson, of which the most prominent was the one at West Point. The French had come to Newport, and Sir Henry Clinton was inclined to attack them there. But the moment he prepared to move, Washington was also prepared to attack New York, so Clinton gave up the project for the time. The scheme was then for the British to pretend to move in another direction, and when the Americans had been misled by the action, then a sudden movement up the Hudson was to be made, and Arnold was to exchange and scatter the forces he had, so that easily West Point and other places would fall into the hands of the Redcoats. There is not the slightest foundation for the story that the British were trying to buy Arnold. It was Arnold himself who had made the efforts, and it was only natural that Clinton should be ready to receive his proposals. For his treachery, Arnold was to receive a sum of money and a commission as a brigadier general in the army of King George. Major Andre sailed up the Hudson on the Vulture, and after landing, met Arnold, with whom he had a conference on the shore that lasted almost all night. Clinton had urged him to wear his uniform, and not to attempt to conceal any papers on his person, but the light-hearted and too-confident young officer disregarded both pieces of advice, for he neither wore his uniform, nor refused to receive the papers in which Arnold had given a full account of the men, the defenses, and the places on the Hudson. These papers Andre placed between his stockings and shoes. Some of the nearby patriots had opened fire upon the vulture in the darkness, and to avoid the shot from an unseen enemy, the vessel dropped farther down the stream, so that Andre could not return to New York as he had come. But Arnold had given him a pass, which read as follows. Headquarters, Robinson House, September 22, 1780. Permit Mr. John Anderson to pass the grounds to the White Plains, or below if he chooses, he being on public business by my direction. B. Arnold, M. General. Equipped with this pass, Andre felt safe, and started across the country toward White Plains, where he expected to find the British outposts. Near Terrytown he was stopped by three men, John Paulding, David Williams, and Isaac Van Wart. 
At first the major mistook these men for Tories, and so somewhat boldly declared the side to which he belonged. But when he perceived his mistake, it was too late to change, even Arnold's past not satisfying his captors. He then offered them a hundred guineas to let him go, and even raised the offer to four hundred. But the men refused to listen, and took him to one of their officers, who ordered him to be searched. And as his shoes were the first articles of clothing to be removed, the papers given him by Arnold were immediately discovered. Not in any way suspecting that Benedict Arnold was mixed up in the affair, Colonel Jameson, the officer to whom Andre had been brought, sent word to Arnold of the capture of the spy, and instantly the traitor knew that his own part had been, or would speedily be, discovered. He was seated with his young wife at the breakfast table, and with them were Hamilton and others who had gone with Washington to Hartford to meet some of the newly arrived Frenchmen and consult with Rochambeau. This very morning they had returned, and the younger members of the party had gone in advance of Washington to Arnold's quarters in their desire to be the guests of Mrs. Arnold, who two days before this time had brought her baby to West Point and joined her husband. This party was at the breakfast table when the letter was handed to Arnold, which informed him of his desperate plight. Excusing himself from the company, the traitor retired to his room, where he summoned his wife and informed her of his peril. Overcome by the shock, the girl wife screamed and fainted in his arms, but there was no time given for her husband to look to her wants. Placing her upon the bed and hastily kissing their baby, Arnold rushed from the house, leapt on the back of his horse, and rode swiftly down the unused path to the shore of the river, where he was taken on board a barge, and by the eight waiting men, rode swiftly eighteen miles down the stream to the place where the vulture was at anchor, and there he was safe. Once on board the ship, Arnold quickly wrote a letter to Washington, in which he declared that his young wife was innocent of any part or knowledge of his treachery, and entreated that she might be permitted to go to her father's house in Philadelphia, or to come see him, should she so desire. This letter, in addition to other papers, at once showed Washington the plot and the traitor. From Mrs. Arnold he could learn nothing, for the poor woman was in hysterics and amidst her sobs and tears declared that Washington himself was to blame, that he was the murderer of her baby boy, and guilty of other similar charges. Moved as Washington was by the discovery of the treason, he did not blame the wife, and even took pains to tell her after he had received Arnold's letter that her husband was safe among the British. The first thing to be done was to look to the defenses, and this is what Washington did. The next was to decide the fate of Andre. The young prisoner had written a frank letter to Washington in which he told the entire story and declared that he was not a spy. This, however, was yet to be decided, and a commission of fourteen generals, of which Green was at the head, decided that André was a spy, and he must be executed as such. The decision, though it was recognized as just, caused profound sorrow, not only among the British, but among the Americans as well. Some even proposed that if Clinton would give up Arnold, André's life should be spared, but Sir Henry was in duty bound to live up to his promise to the traitor, and of course refused to listen to the proposal. Major André, when he found there was no hope for him, begged that he might be shot instead of hanged, but even this request Washington felt obliged to refuse. It was a terrible time and made worse by reports that came from the British that other American generals were in the plot and were coming over to the British side. 
This report was not true, but coming as it did at the time of Arnold's treason, it made all fearful, and the leaders knew that only the sternest of measures must now be used. The execution of Andre was delayed until October 2nd, 1780. The plans could not be changed, and Andre had to die. His breakfast on that fatal morning was sent him by Washington himself, and Andre ate it calmly. Indeed, he was the calmest of all, and said to the servant in his room who was in tears, Leave me until you can show yourself more manly. To the guard officers he said cheerfully, I am ready at any moment, gentlemen, to wait on you. Major Andre walked quietly from the stone house in which he had been confined, arm in arm with the two officers who had been sent to conduct him to the gallows. The eyes of all the assembly were fixed upon him, but apparently he was the most unmoved of all. When he perceived the gallows he faltered for a moment, and then rallying said, I am reconciled to my death, but I detest the mode. It will be but a momentary pang. He held up his arms, and with his own two hands bandaged his eyes with one of the two handkerchiefs the provost-marshal had with him, and then with the other his arms were pinioned. Many were now in tears, but André was still calm. He stepped upon the wagon, and himself adjusted the noose. When he was asked if he had anything to say, he replied calmly, I pray you bear me witness that I meet my fate like a brave man. The wagon was started, and in a few brief minutes John André was with his maker. What a shame that such a man had to die while the arch-traitor Arnold could live. Mrs. Arnold went first to Philadelphia, but some letters of Major André to her, in which he had offered to make some purchases for her in Newport, were found, and it was at once concluded that she must have been party to the treason, and that these words meant more than appeared on the surface. There was not a word of truth in the charge, but Philadelphia men believed it, and she was ordered to leave. As she rode across New Jersey on her way to join her husband in New York, she found many tokens of hatred for the traitor. In many towns he was being burned in effigy, and one place was just preparing the fire when she entered. Out of respect to her, the celebration was delayed until she had passed on. She joined her husband and after the close of the war resided with him for a time in St. John's, New Brunswick, where it is said that she was much praised for her beauty and fascination, and afterward lived in England. Although she survived her husband three years, she must have suffered much, for she was only forty-three years of age at the time of her death. Only one of her four sons was born in America, but there was not one of her children who did not feel ashamed of his name. The storm which Arnold's treason aroused may be best understood by the means the people took of showing their indignation. In many places he was burned in effigy. A plot was formed for his capture in New York, but it failed, though the men who entered the town to seize him were bold and brave. In Philadelphia, where he was detested more than in any other place, the following exhibition took place, as related by the Pennsylvania Packet in an issue of October, 1780. Quote, this afternoon, September 30th, the people of Philadelphia and vicinity made a demonstration somewhat unfavorable to the late commander at West Point by carting that notorious conspirator through the streets of the city. The exhibition was as follows, in which was an effigy of General Arnold sitting. This was dressed in regimentals, had two faces, 
emblematical of his traitorous conduct, a mask in his left hand, a letter in his right from Beelzebub, telling him that he had done all the mischief he could do, and now he must hang himself. At the back of the general was the figure of the devil, dressed in black robes, shaking a purse of money at the general's left ear, and in his right hand a pitchfork, ready to drive him into hell, as the reward due for the many crimes in which his thirst for gold had made him commit. In the front of the stage, and before General Arnold, was placed a large lantern of transparent paper, with the consequences of his crimes thus delineated, i.e., on one part, General Arnold on his knees before the devil, who is pulling him into the flames, a label from the general's mouth with these words, My dear sir, I have served you faithfully, to which the devil replies, And I'll reward you. On the other side, two figures hanging, inscribed, The Traitor's Reward, and written underneath, The Adjutant General of the British Army and Joe Smith. The first hanged as a spy, and the other as a traitor to his country. And on the front of the lantern was written the following, Major General Benedict Arnold, late commander of the fort, West Point. The crime of this man is high treason. He has deserted his important post, West Point, on Hudson River, committed to his charge by His Excellency, the Commander-in-Chief, and has gone off to the enemy at New York. His design to have given up this fortress to our enemies has been discovered by the goodness of the omniscient Creator, who has not only prevented him from carrying it into execution, but has thrown into our hands Andre, the adjutant general of their army, who was detected in the infamous character of a spy. The treachery of this ungrateful general is held up to public view, for the exposition of infamy, and to proclaim with joyful acclamation another instance of the interposition of bounteous providence. The effigy of this ingrate is therefore hanged, for want of his body, as a traitor to his native country, and a betrayer of the laws of honor. The procession began about four o'clock, in the following order. Several gentlemen mounted on horseback, a line of Continental officers, sundry gentlemen in a line, a guard of the city infantry, just before the cart, drums and fifes playing the rogue's march, guards on each side. The procession was attended with a numerous concourse of people, who, after expressing their abhorrence of the treason of the traitor, committed him to the flames, and left both the effigy and the original to sink into the ashes and oblivion. In addition to this procession, copies of the following letter were scattered among the people in order to give expression to the feelings which Arnold's treason had aroused. A letter from His Infernal Majesty, Berlatara Beelzebub, to Alan Buzrael, commonly called Benedict Arnold. A true copy of the original he had in his hand before he was burnt in Philadelphia, September 30th, 1780. Faithful Buzrael, you remember that before we sent you into the world to prepare the ruin of America, the worthy object of our indignation, being by its situation capable of more virtue than any country in the world, we ordered you to begin by great exertions of bravery, to gain the affections of the inhabitants, and bestow on yourself their confidence and their friendship. You succeeded very well in this business, and you were even skillful enough to seduce associates to your operations, some powerful citizens of their country, whom we shall reward in time for their great achievements. We assure you of our royal satisfaction in this particular, and we are glad to see that you obtained the title of a general, 
in which dignity you may be able to do more mischief than in any other. But we cannot approve the choice you made of your face, which has something roguish in it, and does not quite inspire all that confidence we expected. We understand, by some savages, both English and Americans, lately arrived in our dominions, that what they call the virtuous citizens of America suspect you very much of being an enemy to their country. We see with great abhorrence that, notwithstanding all your secret intrigues, the independence of America acquires every day more strength and solidity. Their commerce is flourishing more than ever. Their country affords them every kind of provisions. Their patriotism grows more and more invincible. We deplore with our friends in England the good condition of their army and the bravery of their soldiers. Our kingdom trembles at the very name of Washington, and we detest him as much as he is adored by his countrymen. We expect that you will find some effectual means to deliver us this powerful enemy, but particularly to put an end, by a capital stroke, to all the pretensions of that people, and we flatter ourselves that after their subjection they will be in a few years as corrupted, as wicked, as cruel as their mother country. We rely entirely upon your capabilities, but at the same time we require a prompt execution of your orders. Your affectionate king, Beelzebub. Unquote. Poor Benedict Arnold, detested by the Americans and despised by the very British to whom he had gone, his life was to end in ignominy and disgrace. The space that belonged to him on the beautiful monument that marks the place of his wonderfully brave fight at Saratoga is left vacant and the place he once held and might have kept in the hearts of his countrymen is filled not with the picture of one whom men delight to honor, but one whom they despise. He was untrue to himself, and so could not be true to any man. But before his end came, he was to increase the bitter hatred his countrymen felt for him by other and evil deeds. End of chapter 28